Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today we're going to talk about the movie Talk to Me, the story of radio and television host Petey Green. He found his way into those roles through prison, alcohol, and social advocacy. Don Cheadle stars as Petey Green, Taraji P. Henson stars as his girlfriend Vernell, and Chiwetel Ejiofor plays Dewey Hughes, the man who brought Petey Green on the radio and later became his manager. My guests for today's episode are my frequent collaborator John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Our good friend Don will also join us to discuss the movie. Both of them had become fans of Petey Green, and might I say, doing the research on Petey Green for this episode, I have to say I fell in love with the man. This was a man who just wanted nothing more than to be a vehicle of good in his community, and he was such a man of incredible conviction that you just can't help but fall in love with him. And I'll bet you, by the end of the episode, you're going to feel the same way. Talk to Me gets a 7.3 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, an 83% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 69% rating from Metacritic. How is Talk to Me as a movie? What was Petey Green's real influence on broadcasting and the DC community? What really happened with The Tonight Show? How did he really get on air? We will talk about all of that in this episode. There will be spoilers in the discussion. If you're ready, let's get started. And if not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. recording <laughs> yep we have the recording going that's actually happening all right that's okay it. good so you guys just had a, a taste of the real pd green i want to be pd green you want to be i want to hang out i want to be his friend and i want to learn from him you want to be in p-town i want to be in p-town don i'm down and i wanted to show you that for a couple reasons one i think there's a lot of similarities to what we saw in the movie talk to me but there's a lot of differences, too. Mm -hmm. And before I get into talking about all of that, I wanted to bring you guys at least partially where I was with the research I did. I tell you, this is the toughest episode I have had to research. It usually takes me a week to put a script together. And this one took me three weeks. And the reason why is because a lot of the information that was found at various sources was very contradictory. You know, they'd say he did A, another one would say he did B, and then another source would say he did a mixture of both. So it was really, really tough to nail down what is the timeline, because we'll get more into about the movie itself, but it was a really difficult episode to piece together. But I think I have enough solid facts that I feel comfortable talking about it. And I, I think one of the things I want to do with this episode is really bring to light Petey Green. You want the flesh and blood. Well, and having those different storylines or those different anecdotes that are contradictory, doesn't that tend to lend toward legend? 
it lends towards legend. Unfortunately, a lot of what, what I was finding out there in fact versus fiction or fact checking articles, we're putting what happened from the movie instead of what really happened. So for instance, and we'll talk about a particular piece of Petey Green's history, but his find a grave biography lists what happened in the movie, not what happened in real life. So we're going to get into all of that. But before we do that, I want to talk about Washington, D.C., which is where the story of Talk to Me is set, which is where Petey Green was. And have you ever been to Washington, D.C.? No. No. And Don, you and I have been a couple times. Yes, and I've been there several other times as well. Although I feel like I've gotten to explore it more than you have, because I usually went with you when you were doing something business-wise. Yes. And I got to roam around while you were stuck in a conference. Yes, which lent to its own impression of Washington, D.C. Oh, interesting. So what was your impression of Washington? You can feel the hunger for power. It is palpable in the energy mm -hmm. and in the actions. Just as an example, when I've been there in the winter or in the heat of summer and it's upwards of 100 degrees or... 18 or 20 degrees and there are people out for their jog mm -hmm. the type a personality taken to its logical conclusion and that is the population that everyone considers when they consider washington dc and i think one of the shames is people don't consider the people who live in washington dc and that was my next point is there's this very distinct difference we have friends who used to live on the other side of the metro station from D.C. proper mm -hmm. in a neighborhood. And it's an immediate difference when you head outside of the Beltway and it becomes a neighborhood and you have the small businesses and you have little enclaves and it's still inordinately expensive to live in or near Washington, D.C. But it's a, a very, very different, very neighborhoody feel to it. Yeah, and I wish at the moment I remembered who said this quote I found in my research. But the quote is, Washington is a city where you see the ideals of the country bump up against the reality. Hmm. Which is true, because you go and you go to the mall and you look at the monuments and you read the quotes and and you go, oh, that's that's wonderful. That's American ideals. And then there's homeless people right off the mall. I do believe that quote came from the Washington, D.C. episode of Sonic Highways. Oh, I think it was, which leads us, I think, into culture, because I think that's a piece that plays into the discussion here. And another piece that many people in America do not pay attention to, which is, as Don mentioned, the hunger for power. A lot of that is people who are visitors to D.C., Mm. And I think that the people who actually live in D.C. end up being forgotten in the national conversation. But there's a whole culture there. And that episode of Sonic Highways was my introduction into discovering things like go-go music, which is amazing. Experience Unlimited, which you were introduced to. Absolutely. Before the episode. Who are known as EU, and I think their biggest single ever was Da Butt. It was a dance song, Doing the Butt. And it, I think it was really popular because it was tied to a Spike Lee film. Which one? I want to say School Days, mm. but I'll have to check on that. But 
that's what EU is known for. So I, I really think that's a shame is that people are not in touch with the culture in DC. The the punk that came out in the 70s and 80s, which Dave Grohl came out of Scream, of course, but you also had Minor Threat. You also had Bad Brains, which mm-hmm. came out of DC, along with the go-go music at that time. Excellent, incredible music going on and a whole culture that people are just missing out on. So when we take a look at Talk to Me and we talk about DC, what we have is a movie where P.D. Green became a voice of the community, but I, I think people are really at a disservice to not understand that community in a way. Hmm. But let's go ahead and start talking about the film. We'll talk about the plot like we usually do, talk about our impressions of the film, and then we'll go ahead and talk about the true story behind this movie based on a true story. And what we're talking about here is the movie Talk to Me. And the year is 1965, and radio program director Dewey Hughes, who is played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, is visiting his brother in prison. He has been told about a fellow inmate known as Petey Green, played by Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, is there anything he's bad in? No. No. Even when the movie is terrible, Don Cheadle shines. Petey Green does a radio show on the prison PA system. Dewey meets, or more specifically, is accosted by Petey. (laughs) When Petey tells him to give him a show on the radio station when he gets out. Dewey responds by telling Petey that he doesn't hire miscreants. Dewey's released from prison and shows up at WOL Radio in Washington, D.C. to demand his job. He and his girlfriend, Vernell, played by Taraji P. Henson, make quite a first impression on the entire station, including Dewey's boss, E.G. Sonderling, played by Martin Sheen, who Martin Sheen is great in this. He's really, really good. And that first impression they give is not a good one. (laughs) And and Petey is not hired. (laughs) Petey leads a protest against the radio station to put him on the air a protest that grows in numbers by the day Petey gets a shot at the morning drive time slot and fails miserably insulting the head of a major record label and using language for which the FCC (laughs) finds stations for using who did he go after Barry Barry Gordy I, I thought he made an excellent point. I, 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 on his apology? It, yes, in yes. his quote, yeah. apology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Little uh, Air Benny quotes. Yeah. <laughs> now, I ain't saying he's one, but if... <laughs> Later, Dewey gets Petey on the air again by locking the regular morning jock in his office and locking the door to the broadcast booth. Petey does well the second time around and is hired to work at the station. He becomes a voice in the community when Martin Luther King Jr. is killed in Memphis and riots break out in D.C. Petey is put on the air to try to bring calm to the community. Petey grows in popularity and Dewey offers to be his producer. Petey agrees and is soon doing a local television show and stand-up routines, in addition to his radio gig. Dewey, who is a huge fan of The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson, gets a spot for Petey on the show. Petey takes the stage and tells the mostly white audience that he does not have anything to say to them. After that, Petey and Dewey have a falling out. Dewey goes back to the radio station and starts his own radio show. And 
he ends up buying the station. Vernell shows up at the station to talk to Dewey, and she says that Petey misses him. Dewey finds Petey at the pool hall, and they begin the start of a reconciliation. Petey dies of cancer, and a large crowd attends his funeral, where Dewey recites Petey's sign-off. An epilogue says that 10,000 people attended Petey's funeral. So, what are your thoughts on the film, on the movie Talk to Me? I thought it was brilliant. I, uh, as a, just as a film, uh, from the first scene, the first scene is when wake up, right in prison. Wake up, goddamn yep, it! Wake up, goddamn it! Um, start to finish, stellar, beautifully directed, beautifully produced, um, the acting, and one of the scenes that really got me, which I wasn't expecting because I, I didn't have. I love Martin Sheen's character in the movie, but I, I wasn't too. He kind of seemed like a, um, I don't know, like a pretty flat character, like pretty, you know, a stereotype, you know. Of, but when he's weeping, after Petey does the broadcast oh, and yes. they're leaving and he can't say anything, mm-hmm. I thought that, I, I don't know, humanized him in, in a way that, I just felt the film was dynamic all around. And, and, you know, I think that was an important piece to show because everyone was impacted by that and affected by it. And... It comes in the context of a loss of leaders. RFK was killed, JFK, all within a relatively short time frame, because JFK was 64. And when was RFK killed? 68. So, yeah, anyone who had any sense of hope for the country was just destroyed by Dr. King's death. Yeah, and Bobby, I think, Bobby Bobby gave the news of um, Martin Luther King's, and he, he gave the announcement. Yeah. Yeah. Don, your thoughts on the film? I loved it. It was just fun and compelling. And I agree, Martin Sheen's character felt a little flat. He felt almost representative of the white position mm-hmm. rather yeah. than an actual person. But I think that did help, especially in scenes like after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed because he is a white business owner and he is hurting from it. But you see the difference between the white business owner hurting and the anguish in the black community and what mm-hmm. Petey Green was looked to or look, people looked to him to create some sense of what was happening and to be representative of what they were feeling and to, he was someone for them to look to, whether that was real in the film or an idea to represent his role to the community in Washington, D.C. It was just, it was really compelling. The idea that someone would sit up all night into the morning, just answering phone call after phone call and just drawing in people's anguish without his own outlet. He's just taking it in and taking it in. It's the stuff of martyrs. It is the stuff of martyrs, and I think that's what continues to give him the the iconic status that he has. I think it was also really interesting, and I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but you see the sorts of things I see in my work. When you have someone who has been released from prison, Mm -hmm. and they're expected to just be able to adjust when they're given an opportunity, when they haven't been in that community, and they're supposed to 
have this same idea of what success looks like. You see it with his conversations with Dewey Hughes. And Dewey Hughes is setting up all these things because that's what he envisions as success. So to him, he's giving this grand opportunity to someone who's out of prison for his definition of success. Petey Green's definition of success, it becomes very quickly apparent, is very much different than incorporating himself into the majority culture, the dominant culture. It's to revolutionize and to affect change, to help the community have those paths to find a way to build the community. Mm-hmm. There's probably no dampening of, of P.D. Green, but there's a certain, I think, when he goes from, at least the perception I had in the film was when he goes from the radio to television, there's a loss of vitality. Mm-hmm. In his, I mean, he's still Petey Green, but it, it's not as visceral and raw. It's it, you feel like there are more guardrails on him. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, what they were trying to get across in the film with that is because he makes the comment after they shoot an episode of the TV show that he uh, that sometimes he wants to go back to that room at Lorton, mm-hmm. DJing in prison where he had full control, I would presume, is what he's referring to. And and honestly, where he was a big fish in a small pond at Lorton. So I think that's what they were trying to get across with that, is that the more his opportunities broadened and the bigger the audience got, the less he felt in control. And that may have muted him. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I I was just thinking of it as the less local it seems then the mm-hmm. less immediate it seems once you get injected mm-hmm. into the national conversation mm-hmm. you're no longer just a, a, a washington dc radio dj or radio host or talk show host you're now a national figure and like you're saying who's expected to comment on national issues mm-hmm. and that can, can tend to feel more detached than someone who's i mean just like the th- thinking about the th- the scenes where dr king's assassination and then they go outside and they just see that. I mean, the the visual of the of the rioting and the destruction. It's so real, and I don't think you can get that level of like feeling it in your bones at a national on a national scale and with national media and and all of the various filters that you have to go through. Radio is just it's direct to the people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things with this film is as I did the research. But I think it's tough to say things they got wrong Hmm. because they kind of take broad strokes on things to get ideas across. And I think as we talk about PD and his history, there's going to be parts that the movie didn't mention, which I think are going to unlock a lot of what you're saying and explain it. Hmm. And and I felt great production value in this film from the clothing to the sets to just Everything looked great. And before we get off of, well, I mean, let's talk about actors. Don Chido, we talked about, always great. Chiwetel Ejiofor, I like him in everything I've seen him in. Yeah. Uh, Taraji P. Henson, this character is off the charts. Yeah, absolutely. As for now. Oh when, how about when she gives uh, um, the worm, right? Well, not, not the worm. What worm, What's what's the, the main... the. The main DJ's name, who she she gives a blowjob to him out of revenge? The Nighthawk. The Nighthawk. Because I wanted to mention Cedric, too. Okay, I think yeah, Cedric. Cedric yeah, it's obviously. And then she comes out of the office. 
Now we're even. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> All right. That is how you settle an affair. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, uh, yeah, so great acting all throughout. Great soundtrack. Yeah. The music in this film was almost yeah. the character in yeah, itself. Yeah, absolutely. I was moving the whole time. And you were talking earlier about that Motown sound. The bass. The, oh. the, the ba- it's just there's there's nothing like it. There never has been anything like it. I don't think there, it can be recreated. The Motown bass, just pure. Pure but rough. Oh, I love it. It's deep. It's son- it fills you. You feel it. I was vibrating. One thing I really, really like about this film is unlike other biopics, there's no 11th hour redemption that takes place. Mm-hmm. P.D. Green does not come back from The Tonight Show and do well. Because the rest of the movie, we follow Dewey. Then Vernell visits Dewey. We find out that Dewey's had a show. He's bought the station. And then the next time we see P.D. Green is in the pool hall when he and Dewey are presumably at the start of a reconciliation. And I really, really like that they did not force that Petey goes on and he does well. What he does is he slumps lower, he keeps going downhill, and then dies of cancer. Mm -hmm. So my question, though, is did he consider it heading down all the time? I mean, he didn't seem to mind at all being a pool hustler he didn't want to do all the things dewey set up for him would he see it through the same lens that you are seeing it through we'll talk about all of that okay one thing about Petey that we'll find is he was a very honest person and he was honest with himself as well so when it came to his own faults and failings he would not shirk away from talking about those things any more than he would shirk away from talking about anything else And that's a fairness in his character that I really like. So, for Talk to Me, uh, the score for a movie out of one to four stars. I'm going four stars. I'm going all in. Absolutely four four stars. stars. Four stars all around. Excellent film. Sadly, undiscovered. More people need to see this movie. The performances are just incredible. The soundtrack, the whole look of the film. And let's go ahead and give a shout out. Female director here, because there's too few female directors who are out in the world, and fewer African-American female directors. Cassie Williams is the director of this film, and I think she did an incredible job with pulling everything together. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about the facts of the film in this portion of the podcast. We will talk about how the filmmakers presented the facts and compare them to the real persons or events. At the end of our discussion, we will give the film a letter grade for accuracy. Let's get started. I have found that when a movie says it is inspired by a true story, that should be a warning sign. (laughs) I also think that when the movie based on a true story does not credit a source, such as a book or a magazine article for providing the gist of the story, then that should be another warning sign about how many liberties will be taken with the subject of the film. Talk to Me does both of these things, which is odd because there is a biography out about P.D. Green, and it's called Laugh If You Like, Ain't a Damn Thing Funny. And it was written by Lerna Rackley based on conversations she had with Green. However, Talk to Me only has screenwriter credits listed. Michael Gaudet is one of the screenwriters, 
And Rick Fumuyiwa is another one of the writers. He's also written a couple episodes of The Mandalorian, which is a great show. Have you seen The Mandalorian? Oh, great show. Great show. I don't even have a reference point for it, man. For The Mandalorian? I'm so far removed from that world at this point. Oh, we'll talk later. Okay. We'll talk. You later. are digressing. That's okay. I can edit. <laughs> I like the digressions. I do too. <laughs> now, this has probably been the most difficult film I've had to research. Usually when I confirm what took place in the movie, I will find sources that corroborate the information or shed new light on information I have found previously. When I researched the history of Petey Green, it was difficult to find two sources that told the same story, uh, unless they were saying what happened in the film. <laughs> because of that, I'm going to do my best to call out these inconsistencies, but I've also done my best to find direct sources that could corroborate the information. Let's go ahead and start by talking about Petey Green. In the movie... It picks up with Petey being in prison for armed robbery, and he is playing records and talking on the prison PA system as he puts on a radio show. He is brash and talking loud at first and is tamed by the program director of WOL Radio, Dewey Hughes, during a game of pool. Which, that was a great scene. Oh, yeah. I, I, love, I, I love Dewey's monologue as he's sinking ball after ball. Yeah. And you see Petey just shrinking with each ball that gets sunk. It was so well played. Petey becomes a popular disc jockey and the voice of the Washington, D.C. black community to the point where he is put on air as riots broke out following the death of Martin Luther King Jr. to tamp down the destruction that was taking place. The film shows him branching out into local, then national television, stand-up comedy, and a spot on The Tonight Show that does not work out as planned. Well, what really happened? It should be noted in the biography of Green that I mentioned, Laugh If You Like Ain't a Damn Thing Funny, The Life Story of Ralph Petey Green, as told to Lerma Rackley. Green's time on the radio and television is just one chapter of a nearly 300-page book. My goal for today's discussion is to create a greater appreciation of Petey Green, he is frequently referred to as the first shock jock, with names like Howard Stern and Don Imus being mentioned. No, 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 no. We'll get there. But I don't think that does him justice. As we go through the discussion today, I think we can show why he was much more than that. Yeah. And can I point out, at that point in time, there is no way he was... I mean, Don Imus was, is just... He's a piece of shit opportunist. At the time Petey Green was on the air in Washington, D.C., I was a kid in New York, and Don Imus was the morning show, and it was the Don Imus show in the morning, and then there was the sound of a duck going quack, quack. This, this, no, fuck that shit. How dare they compare them? I'm just saying, when you read accounts of Petey Green, <laughs> these are the influences. Well, I mean, these are who he's said to have influenced. Well, it sounds like we're dealing with a man of... of of character and people are trying to fit him into stereotyped mm -hmm. categories. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just because he said things that would shock on the surface, then therefore he must be a shock jock. And, and well, that's, well, that's a misunderstanding of the term. We'll, yeah. we'll get deeper into it. Ralph Waldo Petey Green Jr. was born in 1931 to an alcoholic father. His father used to beat his mother until she 
And here's one of those inconsistencies because everything I found said she took an axe to his head and left him with 32 stitches. In that clip we watched that I showed you, Petey says she took an axe handle to his head. So important distinctions. And that's one of the things I'm mentioning, that having an axe to the head is a lot different than having an axe handle to the head. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but she did. She hit him in the head, according to Petey Green, with an axe handle and left him with 32 stitches. He never hit her again. But part of that was because he was in prison more than he was home. Petey's father served time in Lorton Prison and was so much trouble that he was sent to Alcatraz. It should be noted in the film, Petey says his father is doing time in Alcatraz, but since Petey is saying that around 1965 and Alcatraz was closed in 63, that couldn't be the case. Petey Green Sr. was in prison quite a bit. Petey's mother, Jackie Green, was arrested and convicted for manslaughter. She killed a woman when Petey was in grade school. He was raised by his maternal grandmother, Margaret Maggie Floyd, who was known as Aunt Pig. And that's A apostrophe N-T rather than A-U-N-T, Aunt Pig. Several sources will repeat that Aunt Pig was Petey's nickname for his grandmother. But in his biography, he said that everyone knew her by this name. Maggie explained that she was a fat child and everyone called her Pig ever since the time she was seven. Aunt Pig knew the job she had in front of her with Petey. She once marched into the classroom to whoop him and hit his bare ass with a braided rope in front of his grade school class. She almost hit the teacher when she tried to intervene. Petey... That was a whole nother world back then. Oh. Now, now, that is so wrong, but the story in the biography is really, really funny. I mean, it's so awful, but, but it's well told in, in the book. Petey dropped out of high school in the ninth grade and joined the Army at the age of 16. When he was shipped out to Korea, he was shipped out through San Francisco, which meant he sailed past Alcatraz, where his father was serving time. He served as a medic in the Korean War and was discharged in 1953 for heroin use. He served time for armed robbery starting in 1960. When he committed the robbery, he hid in a walk-in cooler and got locked in. <laughs> and that's it's creative. <laughs> and that's where the police found him. Friends in prison said that Petey always had a gift for the gap. He avoided problems by making the guy who was threatening him laugh. Under a work training program, he started a radio show on the prison PA system. There are differing accounts as to whether Petey was on the PA for two hours every day or 20 minutes a day. Some accounts say that he did not play music, while other accounts say that Petey played records that his grandmother sent him in prison. But what is true is that everyone was listening. Petey would hold best-dressed contests for the inmates. <laughs> Which sounds like a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. And he did it as a lark, but then he saw guys were pressing their jeans and picking out their beards because some of these guys had never won anything in their lives. And 
And he decided, well, gee, people are taking this seriously. I need to get something official together now that I've announced it. And so he got some judges together in the prison and they picked a winner. And then he had to figure out what to give the guy who won because the guy was really happy he won. Cigarettes. No, oh. he, he somehow that would be my guess <laughs> in the biography. He doesn't go into how this happened. Somehow he was able to get a calligraphy certificate in a wood frame. <laughs> oh, an actual, an actual <laughs> and gave it to the guy. And the guy had tears in his eyes when he received this because he had never won anything. In fact, the effect PD had on his fellow inmates was so great. The warden did not want to let him go. Petey started to notice that he was not coming up for parole as scheduled, mm. which is what prompted him to convince a fellow inmate to climb the water tower and not come down until Petey talked him down. <laughs> At least, this is what a few sources had me believing until I found the account in Green's biography. Damn, it was such a good story. Yeah. The truth is, the parole board just wasn't keen on giving people second chances. It was known to constantly deny prisoners which had impeccable records based on an assumption of what they would do when they got out of prison. This led some inmates to hang themselves after being denied parole. In Petey Green's case, they determined he was so familiar with the prison system, he just knew how to game the system and have a clean record. And as a result, he was not really a well-behaved inmate. They also denied his parole because of his record of public drunkenness, and felt he would just drink again if he were released. God, that's such fucking bullshit. The line in the movie, it took me six months to talk him up into going in the water tower, is a line that Petey said in real life. And in real life, here's the true story. In real life, the guy, Baldy, was his name. Petey had been working on him for six months to go <laughs> up there and, and said, when you come down, they're going to give you parole and they're going to give me parole. Well, how did he convince this guy that he would earn parole by acting crazy? Well, Petey had a reputation in the prison. People listened to Petey. Oh. And, well, what happened was apparently they didn't work on a schedule for this. So one day, Petey hears that Baldy is up on the water tower. <laughs> and now Petey's trying to figure out how is he going to work this whole thing? Because apparently he hadn't gotten that far yet. So. Petey's taken by surprise by Baldy on the water tower. And Baldy was not yelling about the warden's penis size like in the film. He was threatening to jump because oh, there had been suicides damn. based on the parole board. Mm -hmm. He had been turned down for parole. This was a very plausible thing that could happen. On that day, it just so happens that Donald Clemmer, who was the decades-long chief of the prison system, happened to be visiting the prison and he witnessed the scene. During his tenure, he had plenty of criticism from Congress and D.C. officials about his management of the D.C. prison system. And the last thing he needed was an inmate to swan dive off the water tower during his visit. So Clemmer sent for Petey personally and told him the warden and the chaplain had already tried to talk Baldy down. But Baldy wanted Petey. Clemmer put Petey in complete control. He, he handed him the bullhorn and told his officers to step back and not interfere. Baldy said he wanted to see his family and he wanted Petey to come with him. 
In response to the concession, Clemmer said to Petey, what suit size do you wear? Petey was not released immediately after Baldy came down from the water tower. The movie makes it look like it was instantaneous. Clemmer actually offered to take a year off of Petey's sentence. Petey was four and a half years into a 10-year sentence, and he had his next parole hearing coming up in 90 days. Petey did some quick calculations on how he could get the most out of the situation, and to the surprise of Clemmer and the warden, he declined the offer and said he did not want compensation. He said he just hoped that Baldy would be in a position to help him one day. Of course, this response was a calculated gamble to affect the outcome of his next parole board hearing, where he played this angle to the hilt. His parole was granted, and he was released. The year was 1965. Do we know what happened to Baldy? We do not know what happened to Baldy. While in prison, Petey's cellmate was Sam Hughes, the brother of Dewey Hughes. Sam would talk a lot about his brother and tell Petey about Dewey being in the army and then about how Dewey is working at a radio station and how Dewey will get Petey a job when he gets out. But we'll pick up that piece of the story after we talk about Dewey Hughes. Upon release from prison, Green went to work with the United Planning Organization. And this next part we're going to talk about about Petey Green, I think, informs everything that he did in his life and i think it's such a major piece i wish talk to me would have focused on and i'll say why in a moment but upon release from prison green went to work with the united planning organization which was founded in 1962 and is focused on changing lives supporting and inspiring washington dc's low-income residents on their journey to self-sufficiency and success in 1966 Green, along with Reverend Griffin S. Smith, a fellow ex-offender, founded Efforts from Ex-Convents Incorporated, EFEC, an organization for ex-offenders who are desperately seeking a welcoming community upon their release from incarceration. So here he is one year out, and he's founding an organization to help ex-convicts. Recognizing the need to provide tools with which its members could rebuild their lives, EFEC creates self-help, employment training, and housing programs to equip and enable ex-offenders with the opportunity to begin his or her journey back to a productive life. Formerly incarcerated. Uh, actually, ex-offender is what's on their website. Is it still on their website? That's what's on their website. Interesting. Ex-offender. Interesting. So here's the thing, is PD was all about the D.C. community. And what the movie presents, that Green was a drunk ex-convict who got onto radio and became the voice of the D.C. black community. But in reality, Green was a drunk ex-convict who was the voice of the D.C. black community who found his way onto radio. And we'll see as we move on, radio and television were just simply tools to help the community. It was not the end-all, be-all of what he was about. Mm -hmm. It was about making a difference in the community. And I think that goes back to that disparity between what he envisioned for his future and what he intended to get out of opportunities in contrast with what Dewey Hughes thought he was setting up for him. I do, and I just really wish that the movie would have focused more on what Petey's 
real motivation was. I mean, it comes through a little bit at times, but there's other times like when Martin Luther King is assassinated and Dewey's, I'm sorry, Petey's suddenly thrown on the radio. There was nothing in the movie yet to show that Petey would be that force. But when you now know how ingrained Petey was in the community and the effects he was having on members of the community, now it makes sense that he would be thrown on air for the community to listen to him. Because otherwise it makes it seem like a, a star is born on the night of the exactly. assassination. or the day of the... So let's talk about Dewey Hughes. Uh, what's in the movie? Dewey Hughes is program director at WOLAM Radio. He meets Petey Green at Lorton Prison while visiting his brother Milo, and upon Petey's release, gives him a job at the radio station as the morning drive time jock. As Petey becomes more popular, Dewey proposes that he should be Petey's manager, and Petey becomes successful as a stand-up comedian, and then as a local and national television show host. After a failed appearance on The Tonight Show, Dewey and Petey have a falling out. Dewey goes back to WOL to become a disc jockey, and he buys the station. Vernell visits him and urges him to reconcile with Petey. What really happened? Dewey Hughes grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and started working at WOL when he walked into the station manager's office and asked for a job. He had no experience in the radio business, and he had to return and ask for a job several more times before he was given a <laughs> chance at the station. He initially worked as a janitor and hung around the station to learn about the equipment. In 1965, he started working with the news department and the four white men who were covering the D.C. community, all hired according to Dewey Hughes because they had experience. WOLAM was a news and talk radio format and was one of the few stations in the U.S. to have six and a half hours of community programming each week. Wow. The programs were taped, and Dewey worked as an engineer recording the programs. In 1966 or 1967, Hughes started working in the public affairs department. He later became program director, and in the 1980s, he and his wife bought the station. He is still a producer in radio and television. That's cool. An interesting side note, Petey actually knew Kathy Hughes, Dewey's wife, long before Dewey and Kathy met. In fact, he introduced them to each other. Huh. So let's go ahead and talk about WOL, because this is where everything's going to tie together. What's in the movie is that Petey shows up at WOL Radio after his release and demands the job he believes was promised to him by Dewey Hughes. He is given a morning show by Dewey Hughes, who pushes aside the current morning jock. Which, by the way, Sonny Jim was really the name of a DJ who was at WOL. So was the Nighthawk. The Nighthawk was also... <laughs> and speaking of the Nighthawk, because he was doing that... Um, Smooth jazz. You make me so hot. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing that quiet storm. Uh, it was Kathy Hughes, Dewey Hughes's wife, who invented the quiet storm format ah. of the smooth jazz that got copied on yeah. stations all across the country. So what really happened? Green went to the station after his release because he was told by Dewey Hughes's brother, Sam, that his brother would hire him. The only problem was, 
that Dewey was not in a role to hire anyone at that time, and he admits that he gave Petey the cold shoulder for showing up unannounced. This was the first time Dewey met Petey. They did not meet in prison, as in the film. The only promise of a job came from Dewey's brother. There was no demonstration held in front of the station, and Petey and Vernell did not make a scene in the lobby. Well, it was fabulous in the movie. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it was it a was great theater. Great that, was a, that was a great, that was as grand an entrance as anyone could make. <laughs> now, following this encounter, getting the cold shoulder from Dewey, that's when Petey went and worked with the United Planning Organization and founded Efforts from Ex-Convicts, which we previously mentioned, where he became a voice in the community. It was in 1967 when Petey started appearing on WOL Radio. By that time, Dewey was working in the Public Affairs Department and had a show on Sunday afternoons that focused on the community. So he would bring Petey in, knowing about his ties to the community, knowing about him being a voice to the community, he'd bring him in as a guest. Listeners liked Petey's style and would ask him why he doesn't have his own show. They would say... You don't need that white boy. We just want to hear you. Oh, man. <laughs> Ouch. According to Petey. And that's that was in the movie, too. With the bar scene. Yep, exactly. With the guys yeah, talking. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying it's there's elements of truth that are kind of bleeding in. According to Petey, if Dewey had to be out of town for the weekend, he and Green would tape the show ahead of time. One week, Hughes had to be away, but they did not get a chance to tape the show and Green went on by himself. This was the show that Petey Green had, not a morning drive time show, and no station in their right mind would put an untested disc jockey on morning drive time. That's when stations make their money. Uh, I mean, in pre-COVID times, the two times when station, that stations really focus on are morning drive time and afternoon drive time. And the only reason for afternoon drive time is because the thought is, if you listen to the station on the way home, when you turn off your car and you get back in the car the next morning, it's still going to be the same station and you're going to listen to the morning drive time. Mm -hmm. But most definitely, they would not just throw someone on air hoping they would work out. So that really rang false to me when I watched that in the movie. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and riots broke out in Washington, D.C., the consensus at the station really was that they needed to put P.D. Green on the air to talk to the community and help quell some of the violence. As a side note, one piece I found interesting is that the violence in D.C. was instigated almost by accident. There were definitely tempers and tensions running high, but a 26-year-old named Stokely Carmichael, former chair... Stokely Carmichael. You know Stokely Carmichael? Of course! former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the initiator of what became the Black Power Movement in 1967, he led young black activists to demand that shopkeepers close their stores for the day to honor Dr. King. Right on. It is unclear if there was resistance from some white store owners or if arguments broke out about the request, but things escalated quickly. Unfortunately, there are no recordings of Petey Green on the air this day. In fact, none of his radio is survives recording. Oh, man. There's just nothing out there. But we do know he said this at that time. 
He said, I don't know why we hate each other. We find it so easy to hate when it's really hard. But as long as you're hating, you're tearing yourself down mentally and financially. So who said they put him on the air to quell the violence? Was that how he interpreted the situation? Uh, That has been the general assessment of the situation. And Petey Green has been credited with keeping the violence down Mm -hmm. from what it was presumed to occur from what was presumed to that could occur because it seems to me he was there providing comfort which may have resulted in calming the tensions but i wonder i wonder how he would have interpreted it as a leader in the community well i wish we had those tapes to find out me too so we and we don't have transcripts or anything no. From, okay no just that quote okay In the movie, there is a concert given by James Brown, and and the movie says that James Brown is putting it on for DC, and it's presented as if it's a concert that just came about, specifically for this purpose. And the concert really did happen the following day in Boston. And there's no reason why Petey would be present at a concert in Boston. In fact, this was a previously scheduled concert at the Boston Garden, Boston had also suffered uprising and fires the previous night, and the young mayor, Kevin White, considered canceling the James Brown concert, but feared it might cause more rioting. It was a young black city councilman, Tom Atkins, who came up with the idea of making the concert free and televised as a way to keep people at home. On short notice, public station WGBH agreed to televise the concert But James Brown had a problem with the plan. Due to a non-compete clause in his contract, he would lose $60,000 if the concert was televised. Mayor White compensated Brown for that loss. I I don't know what to say. I feel like there's such a contrast in the the potential role that he had and the role that Petey Green had in in providing some comfort to the anguish in mm-hmm. the community. And James Brown is focused on $60,000. And I get it. That's not, it's not chump change. And I don't think necessarily. Well, not in 68. No, well, not even now. No. Um, and I, I see no reason he shouldn't have been compensated. It's just, it's just interesting to give consideration to it. Yeah. Uh, during that concert in Boston, young male audience members, black and white started to climb the stage. As the police approached to intervene, Brown asked the police to step back. To the men climbing the stage, he said, Wait a minute, wait a minute now, wait. Step down, be a gentleman. Now I ask the police to step back because I think I can get some respect from my own people. The men returned to the audience and Brown continued the concert to honor Dr. King. That's fantastic. Mm I thought it was great what they did in the movie with the concert. The mm-hmm. guy they had playing James Brown was, you know, that guy was 50 years old <laughs> playing James Brown, doing those splits <laughs> and those jumps 50 years old. Yeah. And I say that just a tad bit north of 50, but yeah, he was incredible as James Brown. Well, let's talk about Dewey becoming Petey's manager because What happens in the movie is as Petey's popularity rises, Dewey sees an opportunity to capitalize on it. He proposes to Petey that he become his manager, 
and says that he can see Petey doing stand-up and television, and Petey agrees. And when I saw that in the movie and saw them shake hands on that, (laughs) the first thought I had is, you both better define what success is. Because if you don't have similar interests, this is going to explode rather quickly. And it's short. Here's Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) So what really happened? Petey had been doing stand-up comedy before he wound up in Lorton Prison and before he wound up on WOL Radio. He used to play the comedy clubs in exchange for wine. And he opened up for artists like Sam Cooke. Wow. Who paid Petey's bail after he was arrested again for public drunkenness. <laughs> after Dr. Keene's assassination, Petey uh, was credited with tamping down the rioting in D.C. And the local PBS station reached out to Petey to ask if he would be interested in co-hosting a show with a white host, Dick McCormick who was currently hosting a show called Jobs 26, which talked about low-income jobs in the D.C. area. Hmm. Dewey would hang around the set and watch everything that happened. At some point, the show needed a producer, and knowing that Dewey had never done television before, Petey recommended Dewey. As Petey says, Dewey brought me into radio, I brought him into television. (laughs) (laughs) You know who else Dewey brought it? I mean, you know who else Petey brought into television? You know James Brown, the sportscaster? Oh, yeah. He was on an early show with Petey Green as a guest. He had some role in the DC community. And Petey Green said, uh, hey, you know, there's this job open for a sportscaster. I, I, it was on a low-level station. I think you should go out for it. And James Brown said, I've never done sports casting. I don't know what it is. And Petey Green said, the interview's set up. Go. (laughs) And James Brown credits Petey Green with getting him into doing sports casting. That's super cool. You're describing, I realize this is a wild digression, but you're just, you're you're describing a world that feels so organic and um, Mm -hmm. just not preconceptualized. You know what I mean? It's like things emerge. Yeah. And it just, I'm just I I don't know I'm just thinking about the you know radio and television and all that shit today and you know it's like I just I can't imagine you know it going down like in this in this manner mm-hmm. it's just so everything's so I don't know I just feel like this calculation and this unwillingness to take risk you mm-hmm. know and this these all these massive risks where I mean you you're you're threatening the integrity of the station you're threatening the budget of the station you're i mean all of that just seems like no one would take a risk on that no but what i think is also interesting is just keeping an eye out for what people are good at and and helping to set the stage you know knowing that dewey has never done television and the station's looking for a producer yeah get him yeah yeah but that's 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 a different way of we're getting off track but that's a different way of just conceiving like how to solve problems right like Mm you you solve them based on people's you know merits and talents and skills rather than you know what a fucking algorithm says and i don't think that's getting off track i think that's exactly the point of pd green yeah i think that's exactly the point that the movie missed is he was about rising people up so i mean you know 
uh, the opposition that both of you had to him being called a shock jock, I think is completely true. Huh. He spoke in the voice of the community. Yeah. It may have shocked a bunch of white people, but I don't think it shocked members in the black community. And that, that was a point made in the movie, too. He was saying, he said it may shock some white folks, but everything that mm-hmm. I'm talking about, black folks already know. This goes back to conversations we've had off the mic about there's such a comprehensive commodification of talent. Mm-hmm. And his whole purpose was not in commodification. It was there's this opportunity and I should bring these people together and they can figure out what it's going to look like or if it should move forward. And it's just it's just completely different. And that's like a sorry to cut you off. Yeah, but that's yeah. like uh, a let's see yeah. what happens mentality. And that's yeah. that's the whole you know, that's from. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's that that. We've seen the progression of what that does is you don't have two or three seasons of a TV show that gets a chance to become yeah. good quality. You don't give someone a chance to put drop two or three albums or EPs to develop their chops. It just has to be immediate. Yeah. And you, you see this difference in, in what it does when you have someone. And we romanticize it. We love these characters in movies. But God damn it, if someone wants the chance to develop and they're doing mm-hmm. it in the public eye, especially now where oh, everything yeah. is all the time, you don't get the chance to make mistakes. You don't get the chance to decide how you want to branch out or do something that's mediocre while you're trying things out. I mean, we've talked about how mm-hmm. angry people get when a band is putting out its eighth ninth or tenth album and they don't still sound like their second album and it's not that they say oh i don't like this sound anymore it's that they're angry that these people have not produced exactly what brought them in in the first place but we love it when it's happening in a movie they're heroic or they're anti-heroic they're some kind of protagonist and but i think we only get in the in a film we get the we get the peaks and valleys. What we don't mm-hmm. get is the struggle that, like you know, okay. So Petey spends a year working in the community in D.C. before, oh, two years. I'm sorry, um, before this, you know, this this opportunity comes along on the radio. Whereas in the film, it, it it's prison to radio station, right? Yeah. Pro- so I mean, that romanticization is like no, we everybody wants to experience it, mm-hmm. but it's like. Okay, you want to experience it. Are you willing to wait five years? Like, are you willing to wait seven years until like maybe something even close to good comes out? Mm -hmm. And And it's that work in the community that gave him his grounding. And that's one of the things in the movie that really just kind of rang out at me at the radio station is he doesn't have a grounding for what he's being thrown on to do. Mm. And we're just supposed to say, oh, because he did it in prison, it translates here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he finds his way to being the voice of the community. Other way around, he was the voice of the community and got on radio. The Jobs 26 program was funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Education as a jobs program. And when that grant ran out in 1969, the show ended. Oh, by the way, Petey won an Emmy for that program. Holy shit! A local Emmy. Awesome! Yeah. Which he used to keep on the coffee table at his next show. <laughs> as he should now the timeline is tough to pinpoint here but it seems that this is when the tonight show incident happened 
the movie, we talked about the production values, which were so great in this film. And that recreation of The Tonight Show was spot on. Johnny's chair. The, yeah. Johnny's chair. Don't worry, everybody does it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, which I would. Would you? I'm not that enamored of Johnny Carson. No. No. Oh it's probably, I don't know. I, I watched a little bit of him. Yeah. I was probably just too, too young. I'll have to show a scene to you because I think what he was great at was facilitation huh there's a scene i'll show you later involving an axe and a human cutout okay which is a classic <laughs> uh which i'll well what the heck i'll put it on the website biopicsmostlysuck.com slash talk to me so the timeline is tough to pinpoint but the the recreation of the tonight show was great the guy they found to play johnny yeah. who's blurry in the background but even the quick shots of him that are clear he looks enough like johnny carson and that's tough i've seen a bunch of movies that have tried to do carson the carson show and it did it, uh. yeah well also i mean not to mention any time something very familiar is recreated there's always a twinge of false that rings with it and i think of the doors Oh, yeah. But there's a lot of things recreated in the doors. Like the Ed Sullivan where, thing? Where even if you weren't yeah. there, it just rings false in your brain. Yeah. None of what was recreated here rang false. Yeah. The James Brown concert felt yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. The Tonight Show recreation felt fine. Yeah. There's this great quote from um, reading Lolita in Tehran, and I just go back to that because it's the essence of that. What people search for in fiction is not so much reality. It's an epiphany of truth. So it's not, did Petey Green do these things at this exact time? It's, does this resonate as true to who he was or or what he was trying to do? Well, let's find out. Because the fact is, Dewey Hughes, through a friend, was able to get Petey a spot on The Tonight Show. (laughs) There's no footage of it, though, because Petey didn't show up. He actually didn't show up. He didn't show up. He he went and got drunk. Uh, did, did he even want that? Well, and that's the thing I think the movie gets across as well, is because Dewey learned a hard lesson that night about wanting something for someone more than they wanted uh, and being off the mark on what the interests are. But he, here's how Green talks about the incident in his biography. And, and I want to point out, The words of The Tonight Show are never used in what he says here. He says, quote, But around the time after the grant ran out, which is how I was able to pinpoint it happened after Jobs 26, Dewey and I became unbeneficial. We weren't Mm. friends for a short span. I don't know what it was except he wanted to be a perfectionist and I didn't. Mm -hmm. I had got drunk and we were supposed to go somewhere or something and I was drunk and didn't go. I He got drunk, and I didn't care. Wow. Yeah. yeah. According to Cassie Williams, who directed the film, this is still something that hurts Dewey, too. It's still a sore spot for him. Because it's got a sting. That's a tough lesson to learn. But mm-hmm. Petey was about the community. And uh, what I see from my research is, Radio was to help the community. His TV show was to help the community. And a broad national stage doesn't help the D.C. community in the same way. No, no. it actually it seems like it 
he he would have to like gyrate and conform mm-hmm. and contort into just the shape of something that he's not to, yeah. in order to play and be successful in that world. And that's uh, that was interesting when Dewey was saying, "I'm I'm gonna take you to I'm gonna everything right like that's- this vision of." What like you're saying? What success is? It's almost as if I just this is my impression from the film. It seems like Petey was very comfortable and knew himself, and it seems like Dewey did not. Mm-hmm. And it seems like he wanted things that were against his nature. Well, I think Dewey was living vicariously through Petey to a certain extent. Sure. There is the line in the film, I need you to say the things I can't say. And I think to a certain extent, uh, Dewey really did love The Tonight Show. That's a fact. That's true. And he can't be on The Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he saw it as a marker of success. Exactly. Exactly. But it's success in a particular world. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think this is just one of those things that goes back to the simple, no matter what kind of service industry you're in, you start where your client is. And if you don't have the same definition Mm -hmm. of a goal, which, you know, success in whatever you're doing with or on behalf of your client, then you're not doing your job. Yeah. He was a bad manager in that. You know, he had great aspiration but it wasn't his client's aspiration, so it doesn't matter. Because, yes, Petey could do all those things, but Petey didn't want it. So who gives a shit if he could? You know? Yeah. It's just, it's it's bad customer service is what it boiled down to. And both of their lives suffered because he made bad decisions as a service provider. Now, there is one thing I want to mention from that piece on The Tonight Show in the film. And it's when Petey's telling a wide audience, I don't have anything to say to you all. From what I've researched, I think that rings really false on Petey Green. There, there's nothing that I have found on him where he makes a distinction like that in the races. Because mm. you saw the clip with Howard Stern, mm-hmm. right? So he definitely has things to say about race. Sure. But it's never a, I don't have anything to say to you. There's no conversation here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Petey was about having the conversation. Mm-hmm. So that really rang false to his character. I think the interaction rang false to his character. But you could see that perhaps driving why he wouldn't engage. Because that mm-hmm. goes back to what John was saying about you know his desires for serving the community. And at the national level, it's not. Yeah. Because when you go to Johnny Carson, people are just there to laugh. Pure it's, escapism. It's pure escapism, and he's. it would probably be an honest assessment that a lot of those white people in the audience are there just to laugh at the black guy telling jokes yep. and wouldn't get what's being said. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if you are not tuned into that, and even if you are to a certain extent, you're not going to understand all of it. He had his audience that understood it. Those weren't people outside of D.C. No. Now, there is a line that was used in this scene where he said... He was nervous because he hasn't been in front of this many white people before. (laughs) That is a line Petey Green really said. And I want to share the context of it because I like the story so much. In 1982, the students at Walt Whitman High School in Washington, D.C. wanted Petey to speak at their graduation. Uh-huh. <laughs> their parents did not want this to happen. Oh, come on. Whose graduation is it? 
The students persisted, and Petey Green was on the stage. As he stood at the podium to a standing ovation, and there is video out there of this, by the way, he said, I know you are nervous because you don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm nervous because I've never been in front of this many white people before. <laughs> but we will get through it okay. <laughs> Now, Green states in his biography that he was off television for two years, which would mean he was back on the air by 1972. However, I have not been able to find any information about what program he might have been on during this time period. I do know from Green's biography that at some point after he and Hughes had a falling out over The Tonight Show, Green was asked to be the keynote speaker for the convention of black radio and TV broadcasters. Capitol Records liked what they saw, and offered him a contract. Green said his agent was Dewey Hughes and had to call Dewey's mother to give him a phone number to reach Hughes, who was starting his vacation down in Acapulco. But Dewey took the next flight back and met with Petey Green. Capitol Records recorded a comedy album with Green, but according to Green, he says that Capitol had financial problems and did not end up releasing the album. And he doesn't give any years or timeline for it. What does Capitol say? Uh, couldn't find anything on Capitol Records regarding that. I searched Capitol Records, P.D. Green, didn't find anything. Now, also with the two-year time frame he gives between when he was off TV, we know that his radio show, Rappin' with P.D. Green, went until 1977 or 1978. At that time, the station moved to an all-talk format, and the decision was made that Petey Green did not fit in with that new format. How does he not fit in with that format? Did they clarify that? There was no clarification really given on that. Because how, how, how does he... He's a black man playing music. Yeah. Uh, he never played music on WOL. Oh. He, oh. he never spun records on WOL. Oh, okay. At all. It was just a talk show he had. Oh. And, uh, you know, no personnel changes, Don. Yeah. Yeah. Management was restructuring. Yeah. Management was restructuring. Uh, also, if that happened about 77 or 78, because Petey Green says he was at WOL for 10 or 11 years. Well, if he first went on with Dewey Hughes in 1967, that would put it at 77 or 78. Dewey Hughes and his wife, Kathy, bought the station in 79. So whether or not it was tied to that... Or not, I don't know. There's no information on that. But what we do know is the show that Green is best known for because there are clips available online. P.D. Green's Washington ran from 1976 through 1984. It was a show that aired on public television and Green used frank language and talked about issues within the D.C. community. Hubert Humphrey, former vice president of the United States, was a frequent viewer of the show. And Howard Stern appeared on the show in blackface early in his career. Stern cites Green as being a major influence on him, which in that clip that we watched before we came on mic, I do love that part where Howard Stern says, I listen to you and use your material. And Petey's response is, oh, I know you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's not upset about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know you do. Yeah. Uh, in the movie Talk to Me, 
there is a reference to Green going to the White House and taking a spoon. This came about because he had Midge Costanza, who was the special assistant to Jimmy Carter. We watched her being interviewed mm -hmm. on Petey Green's show. And she was on to talk about domestic abuse. After that interview, she arranged an invitation for Petey Green to attend a dinner at the White House honoring the Yugoslavian president. There was no question that Petey Green took a spoon from the White House. In, in the movie, in the in the movie, they have he reportedly did right, and he's being coy about right. it. Right? No, Petey said in print, "I took a spoon from the White House." I love it. There was no question on that one. In oh. fact, I would say of all the things, that's the most secure fact I could find. All right. Now. Let's talk about Petey's death and legacy, because the movie shows that Petey Green died, but from what I recall, they were a little vague on the cause. Mm -hmm. It shows an outdoor service for him on what looks like a beautiful day in mild weather, and an epilogue claims that 10,000 people attended the ceremony. What really happened? Petey Green died from liver cancer on January 10th, 1984, at the age of 52. It's also been reported he was 53 years old, but he was 13 days shy of his 53rd birthday when he died. Mm -hmm. He is survived by one child he had with Vernell and by his wife and their four children. He had a full family during this time, which isn't mentioned in the movie. Mm. In the movie, Vernell was with him to the end, mm -hmm. and that wasn't mm. quite the case. For Petey Green, it was all about the community in Washington, D.C. One of his former radio colleagues, Martha Shepard, said Green's power was tied to his forthright use of the microphone. Quote, when he asked city agencies and churches and individuals to help him help people get heat in their homes or feed their families, they knew that if they didn't, he would talk about them on his radio and TV programs. Badass. It was a... Well, again, they were just a tool to help the community. Yeah. Right? It was a bitterly cold day on his funeral, but approximately 10,000 people attended and waited outside as the service was performed at Union Wesley African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in Washington, D.C. Green is remembered for being a man who was able to speak for his community his legacy includes the Petey Green Community Center in Washington, D.C., which is mm -hmm. run by United Planning Organization, and also by the Petey Green Program, which works to eliminate the educational gaps for formerly incarcerated people. And I think the only thing to do at this point is to wrap up the discussion as Petey Green would wrap up his show. I'll tell it to the hot. I'll tell it to the cold. I'll tell it to the young. I'll tell it to the old. I don't want no laughing, I don't want no crying, and most of all, no signifying. This is P.D. Green's Washington. Very nice. Nicely done. Let's talk about how the movie gets things right or wrong. A letter grade A through F for the movie Talk to Me. It's a difficult one this time around, I think, because I think leaving out the, the community aspect mm -hmm. is a is such a core component of him that if you leave that out, all you got is radio and TV. 
Here's what I would propose. That it gets a C for its facts as they're represented, and it gets a B for representing the essence of P.D. Green. Oh, that's, that's a yeah. thought. What are your thoughts on that, John? I was thinking that to yeah differentiate between facts. I don't. I wouldn't give it a very high score on strictly you know on a factual basis, but in capturing the spirit or the essence of the man or the character. Yeah, solid B, B plus. I I, I still think that I don't know when I watched it. I just I felt that. I just kept thinking this is a man of very deep, not without his flaws, obviously, but this is a man of very deep character. Mm -hmm. Just that you, it's almost something you couldn't take away from him. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that came across in the film. So that's why I want to give it a little higher rating on the essence. I just, I felt moved, you know, in that sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, How do you feel knowing a a few more tidbits about P.D. Green? I feel like I would have uh, loved to have, you know, seen his stuff yeah. and been around to. I'm a Petey Green fan. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I, I became one too, and I highly recommend. Uh, and you can watch this online. Tubi has it. T U B I is a website, but they have where you can watch for free the documentary "Adjust Your Television," oh, yeah. which is about Petey Green. Ran on PBS. Excellent, excellent documentary about him. So, and I would give it a, a straight C. I, I would say C average would yeah. be a, a good way to go on it. All right. Don, final thoughts? Yes. Before you wrap up, I would ask anyone who is listening, take a page from P.D. Green. And as our nation continues to suffer under the utter lack of leadership that we have experienced during COVID, that if you need help to reach out for it, and understand that there are people ready to help. And if you are positioned to help, to give to whatever nonprofit organization is in your community, to give voice to whatever advocacy group is in your community to help those people who need it. All right. Good note to end on. John, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Don, thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. I'm sorry about the weed whacker coming in at the end while Don was talking, but I felt that what she said was so important and said so well that I did not want to tame it down with a second take. And hey, when you have a recording studio in your home, sometimes the neighbors intrude. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources that we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash talk to me. I usually throw in some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For talk to me, I have a few videos. The first is Petey Green's monologue on how to eat a watermelon. It's a classic and you get a good sense of how Petey Green talked to the community. I also have a half-hour interview with Dewey Hughes, which was invaluable in putting the pieces of the Petey Green timeline together. I also have a little bit of a performance from Experience Unlimited, a go-go band in the D.C. area. And then lastly, 
I had made the promise during the conversation. I had a sidebar regarding Johnny Carson. Well, I have Johnny Carson and the axe throw. Classic bit of television. You gotta check it out. I want to thank John and Don for talking about Talk To Me. It was a great discussion about a great man. You can find John Helix on Facebook at John Helix Official. You can find his music in most places where you go to get your music. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the handle of at Mostly You can also find us on Letterboxd.com, a social media site for film lovers. You can find our podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and any place you go to find your podcast. Or just send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.